you got your Bibles, open up to Psalm 24. Psalm 24 will be there in just a minute. This weekend, we marked the end of one calendar year and the start of another. And on one hand, it's really just another weekend. It just happens to be that it falls on New Year's. But because the year date changes, there's a built-in added focus connected to this weekend being both a closure and a new start. It creates a natural time for reflection and new resolves connected to the idea of out with the old and in with the new. This weekend is another moment in time that can find us primed to make some changes and some new beginnings. And God loves both. He knows better than we do how important changes and new beginnings are to our ongoing spiritual health and well-being. None of us can afford to just settle. None of us can afford to be sedentary in our faith. It's never wise to let ourselves fall into the trap of just going through the motions and coasting spiritually. Instead, we are all called and invited by name to live each day of our lives in an active relationship with God, seeking first his kingdom and his righteousness, walking yoked with Jesus, being led in step with the Holy Spirit as we learn more about God's ways and about how to put them into practice. That opportunity is available to all of us. But as always, our free will choices matter. Many biblical scholars think that David composed Psalm 24 after he finally brought the Ark of the Covenant into Jerusalem. Remember, early in his teen years, David was anointed by the prophet Samuel to be the next king of Israel. There was just one problem. There was already a king. His name was Saul. And uh, it was not until David was 30 that he was finally recognized as the king over all of Israel. Once David was enthroned in Jerusalem, he prepared an open-air tabernacle on the roof of his residence. And they brought the Ark of the Covenant and they set it there. And worship began to happen there 24-7, 365. Tradition also says that this poetic praise here of Psalm 24 became the opening declaration for the first day of the week service held in the temple that would be built by David's son, Solomon. Psalm 24, verse 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it, for he founded it upon the seas and he established it upon the waters. In the original Hebrew, God's name is the first word of this psalm, which places an unmistakable emphasis on his preeminence over all things. Because not only is he the creator of the earth, but also to this very day, all created things are sustained and held together because of him. The Passion says, God claims the world as his. Everything and everyone belongs to him. So right off the bat, this psalm calls us to give front and center attention to God's overarching sovereignty in our everyday worldview. It also includes an inlaid reminder that from the beginning, when God created us male and female in his image, he blessed us to have a good life and he gave us a stewardship responsibility to be his caretakers for every part of the planet as we walk and live in fellowship and in partnership with him. Well, today we've gotten a lot of that backwards. Environmental issues have become a religion in and unto themselves with many. And the pursuit of a good life is often built around just what seems best to us. This mixed up mess and miss revolves around way too many what ifs and if onlys ultimately aimed at getting us more pleasure and less responsibility. And it's further proof of the reality that 
deception is still very deceiving. All that robs God of the glory and the honor that's due uh, to be given to him. And all of that opens us up to unhealthy levels of ingratitude toward God, as well as misguided yearnings for things that we don't have. Well, there's nothing new under the sun. And in this psalm, David called us away from all of that into the lifestyle purity God intends to be the foundation for our daily relationship with him. Psalm 24, verse 3. Who may ascend the hill of the Lord? Who may stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. In ancient times, it was common for a bowl of water to be found at the entrance of a place of worship. And everyone who came to worship washed their hands before going inside. For many, I, I suspect that just became a mindless ritual. But at the same time, the hand washing was an opportunity to reflect on the holiness and the greatness of God. And the hand washing was an act of humility before coming into his presence. Now, today we don't have a bowl of water. But today, we present ourselves to that same holy and great God every single day of the week. And I believe that living with a more conscious awareness of who God is and of his ever presence with us, rather than just taking all that for granted, is a good spiritual discipline for all of us to keep cultivating. This Hebrew word ascend describes an upward climb. It's purposeful. It's upward movement. And while it's true that God's presence now dwells and lives inside of us, there's something important and profound about choosing to set our hearts and minds on things above rather than on earthly things. And not just doing so in a quick visit in a morning prayer or in a desperate time of need or even in a once-a-week worship service. Instead, who may ascend is an open reminder to embrace and occupy the lifted up place, seated with Jesus, that he has secured for us with his blood. Who may stand in his holy place. Could also be translated, who may abide in his holy place. Or who may remain in his holy place. This Hebrew word for stand also speaks to move, and it's the primary root word for to rise. It's used in various applications, literally, figuratively, intensively, and causatively. It's about getting up. It's about taking a stand, as well as being made to stand. Both of these questions, who may ascend and who may stand, still echo into our day. And in this psalm, they're asked and clearly answered by David. And his original answer continues to ring true today. His answer starts with those who have clean hands. Most of the time in the Old Testament, the word that we have here for clean is translated innocent. It comes from the word to be made clean. And in addition to innocent, it can also mean blameless, guiltless, clear of, and free from. This clean innocent alludes to the purity that was part of God's original design and intention for each of our lives. In the Old Testament, in the terms of the Old Covenant, whenever someone became unclean by being defiled, whether intentionally or unintentionally, God's people followed a prescribed plan of ritual purifications and sacrificial offerings to repent of their wrongdoing. Now, under the better terms of the New Covenant, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and purify us from all unrighteousness. It does not say 
If we try to make up for our sin, then he'll forgive us and cleanse us. It does not say if we just try to hide and cover up our sin, maybe he won't notice and we can be forgiven. It says if we confess our sin, if we own it, if we humble ourselves and repent out loud to God, then we receive what Jesus has already bought and paid for in full, our cleansing and our forgiveness. First John 1, 7, it also says, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. Living clean in the light is meant to be the normal. Living clean in the light is meant to be the normal for every one of us. Better than any light strike technology developed and used today to purify the air, walking in God's light purifies our heart, our spirit, and our soul. There is nothing good ever to be gained from walking around in the dark or hiding in the shadows. That kind of living only defiles us personally, and it also hinders our ability to have healthy relationships with other people, and it causes us to resist receiving the cleansing power of Jesus' blood. Those who have clean hands, those who have clean hands. All the COVID mess from the last few years certainly took the idea and importance of having clean hands up to another level in our consciousness, didn't it? Oh, if that idea only resonated as deeply inside of us related to our daily walk with God. This Hebrew word for hands specifically refers to the open palms of the hands. And on one level, it's a beautiful picture of hands lifted up in worship to the Lord. I told you last week, uh, the part of my testimony and story where I was seated on the back row and the pastor was talking about in March being overshadowed by the Holy Spirit. And I came forward and said, I don't know what I need, but I got to have more with Jesus than I got. And 90 minutes later, after a, after a cleansing, forgiveness, uh, inner healing, and a deliverance, I got up radically changed forever. I, I was overshadowed and changed forever. Yes. Couldn't drive home. I was so overwhelmed by the experience, I couldn't drive home. We only lived a few miles from the church, but Cindy had to drive us home because I was just wrecked. I just had nothing, nothing left. Next morning, I get up to take my shower, and I go to open the shower curtain. It's like my hand just flew up like this. Now, I grew up Baptist, and I don't know if you know this about Baptists, but they typically don't lift their hands in worship. And um, just that wasn't part of my tradition. I hadn't been around it. Then we started attending God's Sense of Humor, a spirit-filled Baptist church, and people worship with their hands up. And I, I kind of wanted to do that. At first, at kind of first, I thought, well, I, don't, I don't know if that's right or not. So when worship would start, I just put my hands in my pockets. You know, and stand there and worship my hands in my pockets. But then it started getting to me, and I thought, you know, I really, I want to I worship God like that. I want to. And so I'd get my hands out of my pockets, but really I could only get them to about right here. That was about as far as I could go. They just wouldn't go farther than that. Then I had, I don't know what I need, but I need more Jesus than what I got, that experience. And the next morning, I got up to uh, take a shower, and I lifted my hands up to open the shower curtain. It was like, my hand just flew up. And I said, Cindy, come here and look at this. And... She said, uh, yeah, what? I mean, it's like, look, look. And she said, yes. I said, no, no, it's so different. That night we went to church, and from that night forward, my hands, I've just been, it's just been a natural instinct and something that, that came in me. There was some stuff that needed to get out of me. There was stuff that needed to get out of me and off of me to loose me to be able to worship like that. Now, that's not just some charismatic form of worship. Actually, in the Bible, the first word for praise 
Yada Judah. That's what shows up first. It was the first prescribed way to worship. And it means to worship with your hands lifted up in praise, with your open hands lifted up to the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but even in amazing worship like this, sometimes you're wanting to worship, but your mind's going here. Squirrel, squirrel. I mean, you're just off in other places. You got other things going on. You just can't focus. And one of the things through the years that I've learned is that yawdawing is a discipline that can help me bring myself back into worship when my mind is rebelling, when I should be in. So for instance, um, one of the simple things you can do, you're like just distracted. You can't get in or whatever. You don't know the song. You're just frustrated. Just put your arms out like this to your side and just hold them there at your side. And after just a very few seconds, all of a sudden your shoulders start to hurt because your arms aren't meant to be held out like this very long. And then let yourself have this thought. Jesus wasn't just extending his arms for me. He was nailed to the cross for me. And he did that because he loved me. No matter what's going on in the singing or worship, now something else happens and you begin to focus. But what you've done is you've yawed, you've used your hands, you've used your body to bring yourself into a place of worship. There's lots of other ways that work. We just got to spend some time with uh, some of our grandkids and you know they come running up, pops, and they put their hands up like this. What are you putting your hands up for? No, I know what their hands are for. I just pick them up. That means pick me up. And guess what? That wasn't my idea. That was the Heavenly Father's idea first. And when he sees us as his kids lifting up our hands to him, he knows to come and pick us up. But again, it's like sometimes we have to express that. He honors our choices. So we're standing there with our hands in our pocket, and he so wants to come give us a hug, but we've got him closed off. Instead, we lift up our hands and say, I need a hug from your father. Boom. There he comes. That's how he, but we use, it's, it's our choice. It's our action of uplifted hands. Um, you go to a sporting event or something like that and something good happens, you go, yes! It's so natural to do that at a sporting event, but in church, it's like, is it okay to, yes, it's okay to do that in church. He's more worthy than anything that just happened in any sporting event or anything you're celebrating. He's worthy to be praised and worshiped like that. If you're in a fight with somebody and they come out and they do this, what's that mean? I give up. Hey, guess what? God understands that too. And sometimes in the midst of all that's going on, really what we just need to do is, I surrender, I give up. So that's this yada, that's this using our hands to draw ourselves and communicate into a place of worship, bringing ourselves into agreement. He has clean hands. It's one of the things we can do with him. Showing the palms of our hands is also a metaphor for what you see is what you get. It's kind of a, a transparency and an openness. It's like there's nothing hidden here. It's not like a magician that's trying to hide things or do tricks with his hands. It's like, look, I've got nothing in my hands. This is who I am. This is a safe place. What you see is what you get. And beyond that, what we set our hands to speaks to the things that we do each day. And as followers of Jesus, our lives are meant to be filled with good and beautiful deeds that cause others to give glory to God when Jesus is revealed to them. What we set our hands to matters. What we set our hands to matters. And I think it also directly affects the confidence that we have when we approach God. When we're setting our hands to things that we know are messed up and that we shouldn't be doing and we're involved in things we shouldn't, it is more difficult to come into God's presence. There's something of us that resists it. Now, the truth of the matter is we can come into God's presence anytime, every day. On the days we got our hands to the right things and on the days we got our hands to the wrong things. We are welcome in his presence. The blood of Jesus is enough to cover all of that. The mercy of God is there for the taking if we just come to him. That's the truth. That's the truth. 
But this far in my journey with the Lord, I have found it to be a much more pleasant and enjoyable experience to come to the Lord with clean hands rather than to come with hands that need to be cleaned up and purified. I'm thankful that when I get there, my hands are messed up, he can clean me up and purify. But to just come into his presence with clean hands, such a joy. Such a joy. And don't fall for any of the so-called Christian teaching that so emphasizes the atonement Jesus secured for us that implies good works aren't supposed to be a consistent part of our daily lives. Charles Spurgeon once said, it's to be feared that many professors have perverted the doctrine of justification by faith in such a way as to treat good works with contempt. Outward practical holiness is a very precious mark of grace. Outward practical holiness is a very precious mark of grace. James 2 says it this way, faith that doesn't involve action is phony, dead, and fruitless. I'll show you my faith by my works as proof of what I believe. For just as the human body without the spirit is a dead corpse, so faith without the expression of good works is dead. Who may ascend and stand? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Interestingly, the first definition of this Hebrew word for pure is beloved. The first definition of this word for pure is beloved, which tells us how precious purity is to God. Amen. By definition, this pure can mean clean, literally or figuratively, clear, as well as choice, as in superior quality, excellent and preferred. So a pure heart is free from mixture or adhesion with anything that soils, adulterates, or corrupts. A pure heart is free from mixture or adhesion with anything that soils, adulterates, or corrupts, which leads to having an inner life of moral blamelessness. This kind of purity is grounded in a right understanding of and in a right relationship with God. Psalm 19.9 says, The reverent fear of the Lord is pure, same word, enduring forever. And Proverbs tells us that the reverent fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge as well as the beginning of wisdom. So having a pure heart is an important thing. Now, it's not a calling to a type of religiosity based around outward appearances of correct conduct or of ceremonial cleansing of living by the law. Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for that when he said, blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish and then the outside will also be clean. Having a pure heart is about growing in relationship with God that spiritually roots us in an inward enlightenment and understanding that then governs our thoughts, desires, purpose, and character. Yes. Ultimately, having a pure heart comes from being conformed more and more into the image of Jesus. And that doesn't and won't happen by accident. But as it happens, it affects our whole spirit, soul, and body. When this kind of pure is found in our hearts, Jesus said we'd be blessed. He also said when this kind of pure is found in our heart, we'd be able to see God. And the word that he used for see means to gaze at with wide open eyes at something remarkable. He wants us to see God like that, to see him in all his glory, in all of his beauty, in all of his wonder, in all of his majesty. So a pure heart is free from any impediments that would cloud its vision or impede its understanding in pursuit of God. A pure heart loves only what's good, and it has true and noble aspirations rather than hidden agendas and false motives.
Those who have a pure heart live faithfully submitted to the Holy Spirit. They regularly check their actions and motives, and they also keep their feelings and emotions in check because a person with a pure heart will choose to talk, say, and do the right God-honoring thing regardless of what they feel. And the more and the longer we live with a pure heart, the more genuine and authentic we become as a person. Same time, people with a pure heart are not exempt from trials, troubles, and tribulations in this life. But as they walk through them, they tend to smile more. They tend to forgive more quickly. And they treat other people with love and respect. Pure-hearted people also give generously without expecting to receive anything in return. And they're the kind of people who are trustworthy, humble, honest, and accountable. And accountable. Sadly, we live in a world that's saturated by corruption and contagiously bad morals. But people with a pure heart know that giving room to any kind of impurity is an attack on their relationship with God. Instead, choosing to keep a pure heart is one way we can show God that we love him. It's one way that we can show our gratitude to him for all that he has done and is doing for us. Because the whole truth is this. Only through God's mercy and grace is such a purity available to any of us. Near the end of 1 Thessalonians, Paul included this prayer. May God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through, and the Amplified adds, that is, separate you from profane things, making you pure and holy, completely consecrated to God. And may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved, blameless, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And then this promise attached, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. The one who calls you is faithful, and he will do it. Who may ascend and stand? David added an amplified description of those who have clean hands and a pure heart. Those who do not lift up their soul to an idol or swear by what is false. Now, besides the obvious reference to honoring the first two of the Ten Commandments, you shall have no other God beside me, and you shall not make for yourself an idol of any kind. In the original Hebrew, this do not lift up your soul to an idol was a common expression understood to mean Do not nurse an appetite for something other than God. Do not nurse an appetite for something other than God. It's pretty sobering to think how quickly we can suddenly develop a taste for the dishonest, the deceitful, the less than. Forgive us, Lord. I believe the Holy Spirit inspired David to add this defining tagline because God knows better than we do how detrimental it is to deceive ourselves about what we're truly worshiping, and about where we're actually putting our trust. In his book, Resilient, John Eldridge wrote, the goal of God's work in us is Jesus taking up residence in every part of us. Nothing left out, no little pockets of resistance. Much of the testing and falling away takes place very subtly in the heart. It's the small turns from God toward other comforters. It's the quiet feelings of disappointment with God. It's the early stages of desolation. This is how most of the testing plays out, but it has momentum like an avalanche. Psalm 24, verse 3, who may ascend to the hill of the Lord? 
who may stand in the holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who doesn't lift his soul to an idol or swear by what is false, he will receive blessing from the Lord and vindication from God his Savior. For those who ascend and stand with clean hands and a pure heart, these are some of the immediate rewards. In Hebrew, this blessing is about receiving a benediction from God that releases success, well-being, and prosperity upon us. And rather than receiving vindication from God, as the NIV reads, a better translation is receiving righteousness from God, which is actually about being blessed by God into a place of right standing with him that produces the conduct and the moral virtues that he, attend, he intends to accompany our salvation. Verse 6, such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek your face, O God of Jacob, Selah. Selah is an invitation to pause and consider. And part of that involves recognizing the open invitation that we all have to be part of a generation that seeks the face of God. We have an opportunity right now on this planet, on earth as it is in heaven, to be part of the generation that is seeking the face of God. There's lots, lots of different ways to walk out Christianity. But I want to be part of the group that is seeking the face of God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. What does it mean to seek the face of God? The Amplified translates it like this. Those who seek him, those who inquire of and for him, and those who of necessity require him in their lives. In Hebrew, this seek identifies a desire to find and commune with God. And actually seeking the face of God, that word means to follow God in a worshipful pursuit. But here's an here's a important part of this seeking. It's not seeking God for what you can get from him. There's a first reach of the heart where we have to reach for God for the things that we can get from him. We need salvation. We need forgiveness. We need his grace. But this seeking of the face of God, this word that's used here, isn't about us getting something. This is the second reach of the heart. I want to seek your face because I want to bless you. I want to honor you. I, I, don't, I don't need in this moment for you to give me anything else. You've blessed me so much. I know you're with me. I still got things I'm struggling with. But that's all aside. I want to bless you. I want to worship you. That's what this seeking the face of God describes and is all about. Aspiring to live with clean hands and a pure heart in a world where immorality is openly encouraged and practiced. Well, it's not a new idea. And it's not even a new challenge. And it's not something for only a select few. Living with clean hands and a pure heart is God's desire for all of us. And our choosing to live with clean hands and a pure heart is another expression of an integrity that is meant to be a vital part of walking out and working out our salvation. It's more about the process than perfectionism. It's about constantly becoming more than about arriving. And it's the fruit of a resolve to live in real and tangible ways that honor God and bring glory to his name. The essence of David's Psalm 24 appeal is also found in 2 Corinthians 7.1. Let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit. Let us purify ourselves from everything that contaminates body and spirit, perfecting holiness, doing the work, living a consecrated life set apart for God's purposes out of reverence for God. 
perfecting holiness, doing the work, and living a consecrated life set apart for God's purposes out of reverence for God. Over the next several weekends, I want to unpack that a little bit and dive into more what it means to live in that perfected holiness, what it means to do that work, what a consecrated life set apart for God's purposes can look like. But as we finish up this first service of a new year, and in light of what we've already looked at about having clean hands and a pure heart, it just felt so right, so appropriate, so fitting for us to share the Lord's Supper communion together. And the scriptures tell us that whenever we do that, uh, there's, it's a good time for self-evaluation. So get hold of that prepackaged communion, but don't open it yet. Don't open it yet. Just get it in your hand. Don't open it yet. As we begin this time, I felt like this is the Lord showed me to have us do. Just put that in one of your hands and then just lift your hands up to the Lord. And although there's a commercial prepackaged communion element in your hand, that's that's... That's a reminder of the body and blood of Jesus. That's a reminder of the greatness of the love that God had for each one of us individually and for the whole world. With your hands lifted up and that there, just, just allow yourself to think a minute on the goodness and the greatness and the love of God for you. And just thank him. Thank you, Lord. Worship you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Thank you. Now, with our hands lifted up like that before the Lord, ask the Holy Spirit, is there something in my hands that doesn't belong there? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but if he shows you something, that's him saying right now, in this moment, there's grace to let it go and be done with it. Is there something in my hands, something I'm holding on to that doesn't honor you, that doesn't belong there? Let it go and give it to him. Ask for his forgiveness, let it go, and give it to him. And then I also felt like with our hands still lifted like that is a perfect time to say, is there something new you want to put in my hand at 2023? Is there something else that you want me to put my hand to that I haven't set my hand to yet or something that I've got my hands on that I need to keep holding on. Just, Lord, a spirit of wisdom and revelation to confirm and show us specific things that you'd have for us to set our hands to in this new year as we begin it today. Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Just say yes to the Lord for that. Yes, Lord, I'll do it. Yes, yes, I'll do it, Lord. Yes. I don't know how to work out. I don't know what to live. Yes, but the answer is yes. 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 And you lower your hands if you want, and I, I just would encourage you to put one hand on your heart. And welcome and invite the spotlight of the Holy Spirit to reveal the true condition of where your heart is today. You may be on the top of your game, or the whole world may be on top of you, and you may be in a hard place. Wherever you are in between all of that, allow the Holy Spirit to show you right where your heart is today. Allow him to show you this is how he sees your heart. And again, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just receive the revelation. It's so healthy to have a true awareness and an understanding of where our heart is and in what condition our heart is in. If there's any impurities that show up, just repent. And welcome the perfect love of the Lord 
into every part of your heart. Welcome all the light of the Lord and the perfect love. His perfect love seeks and destroys and drives out all kinds of fear. There's no reason to go one more minute into 2023 with fear in your heart. Just receive, just receive his perfect love even right now. We already sang it this morning. I open up my heart to you. Even right now, we do it again, Lord. We open our heart to you. 